Hey guys, Luke McElroy from Mets Performance Consulting here. Welcome back to another episode of the Physiology Secrets Podcast. Joined today by a very special guest in Nathan Heaney. Uh, Nathan is somebody I've connected with in the last six months or so. He has a, a wealth of experience in the conditioning space. First started out uh, in, at the Victorian Institute of Sport for nine or 10 years doing uh, as a physical preparation coach, focusing specifically on hockey, netball, track and field events. He then moved over to the Adelaide Crows for three years as the strength and conditioning coordinator. Got some really good uh, results in the fitness department there uh, before moving into just recently as the head of athlete uh, performance and development at Xavier College in Kew. So uh, the reason I've got Nathan on board today is I, th- I think it's very rare for us to find uh, somebody in the conditioning space that that aligns really well with our philosophies and, and really knows uh, the ins and outs of how to improve aerobic capacity and aerobic fitness. And the reason I wanted to get Nathan on today is because I've, I've watched his workshops that he did. He ran a couple of workshops uh, not too long ago that, that sort of broke down different training prescriptions of high intensity interval training and difference of polarized training in terms of doing your hard stuff really hard, your easy stuff really easy and, and, and spending time at VO2 max to really improve uh, aerobic fitness. So I found that a lot of the stuff that Nathan was doing really aligned well with the stuff that we do at Mets. And I wanted to get him on today uh, to pick his brain a little bit further. He has a lot of experience in this, in the conditioning space. And I've got some follow-up questions uh, from the webinars that he ran the other week, uh, which I think a lot of our audience would find valuable. So welcome, Nathan. Thanks, Luke, for the uh, very kind introduction. And uh, yeah, very pleased to, to be here and a part of your um, podcast. Beautiful, mate. I like to get these pretty short and sharp and to, and to the point. So let's jump straight in. I've got a couple of questions for you. So number one, um, let's use a marathon runner as an example. So let's say a three, someone who's trying to do a three-hour marathon. In your experience, how long is long enough for that zone two long run? So traditionally, they're going to do a couple of high-intensity interval training sessions during the week, but with a, an 80-20 focus of that 80% being that zone two really easy volume at a sub-max intensity what do you think that long run should be? And what are the pros and cons, I guess, of, of choosing a long run distance by the time you get to, to close to race day? Yeah, really good question. Um, and I guess uh, the way I'll answer it is in sort of two parts. So um, I think quite clearly when people are preparing for a marathon um, and have a certain um, goal or target in mind, um, the, the, I guess the key piece, which, which I think has, has to be focused on as part of the preparation is, that acute sessional volume. So the long run for most endurance athletes that are preparing for a marathon, um, that's for most for the most part, the, the biggest challenge. So can they physically tolerate that distance? So um, I, I think the way I've typically approached it with, with athletes is um, depending on their training status, robustness, ability to, to tolerate um, training volumes, um, that then has a big impact on the on the, the rate of progression of that long run. So for example, some some athletes can tolerate a really sequential um, progression. So it might be a weekly progression in volume for that long run. So for example, it might they might ramp up from 10, 12, 15K all the way through to might be 37, 38, 39K, which I sort of generally cap out at because typically what happens when you think about a three-hour marathon um, more often than not, the long runs I advocate and prescribe are primarily easy. So by virtue of doing that, um, they don't need to they don't need to run 42k to accrue that time on feet. So um, so I think for me, I, again to answer the question really bluntly, I think the first point is 
generally I would cap it anywhere from 37 to 40K for, for most athletes. Obviously, there's going to be um, individual circumstances which maybe require a slightly longer run to, to achieve it. Um, but I think that the really key point with this is um, when progressing the long run volume, I think people need to be really careful with um, how they approach that based on their training status, injury history, and also their, their robustness. So, yeah, I certainly, um, I'm working with a few athletes at the moment that are preparing for uh, respective marathons or, or ultra events. And, and certainly their, the approach to the long runs is, is drastically different based on those circumstances. Um, and the second point to this particular question is um, one of the major issues we identify with the completion of this type of running session is that more often than not, um, the athletes complete this run at, at too high an intensity. So um, again, we'll introduce the polarized concept a little bit later, but for example, when they do an easy long run and easy being inverted commas, they'll tend to, um, they'll tend to perform that run um, too hard. So too fast. And by virtue of doing that, the run, then the, I guess the, the ultimate goal of accruing easy mileage um, is undermined and detracted from the fact that they are they end up accruing lots of time in and around that sort of zone two um, training zone, which will um, which obviously will expand on in the polarized training model below. Yeah, it sounds, it sounds like we've got fairly similar philosophies. Like we we aim for in an ideal world, and it's, that's theoretically not not practically around about one hundred and ten percent of expected race time. As you said, it's probably going to be about thirty seven, thirty eight k's based on just a, a nice easy zone two run. Yeah. Um, I'm curious as to your thoughts, mate, in terms of um, physiologically. So, if we're trying to do a three hour marathon. Is there a cutoff point where physiologically you're not going to get significantly more changes in your mitochondrial biogenesis, your capillarization, et cetera? Like, is that going to cap out at two hours, for example, but we want to go to a three-hour long run more so for like the muscular endurance perspective? Have you got any, any thoughts mm. around that sort of side of thing? Physiology versus muscular endurance versus, I guess, maybe just feeling competent in maybe finishing the actual distance? Well, I think I think the, the whole point around the long run is – we know that those types of running sessions, if executed effectively, so if you're doing them at the right, in, the right intensity, they're, they're not the most optimal sessions to induce um, aerobic fitness improvement. So we know that. Like that that's unequivocal um, in the in the peer-reviewed literature. So that, that's that sort of t- that's underpinned by higher intensity training. So when you complete a long run, you are doing it, doing it for peripheral adaptation. So can your muscles connective tissue tolerate the load that you're imposing on it? And by note, like for anyone running a marathon is a challenge. So, um, so I think for me, it, it is, it's not so much about those central adaptations that you referred to. It's more about the peripheral, peripheral adaptations that sort of um, that underpin the, the benefit of doing the long run. Um, and then obviously the other thing that's incredibly important is having an athlete that's confident, in their ability to complete the distance. So like um, a marathon is not an event you want to go into apprehensive about whether I uh, think thinking apprehensively about whether you can actually complete the distance like that, that that's going to play mind games with you from the outset. And that is not a good mindset to be in when you, when you undertake such a, such an event. So on that, let's say we've got this, this marathon runner and all they do is run. They only want to do a marathon. They're not worried about, you know, a triathlete doing three legs, for example, if we've got, <clears throat> Let's say you've got an athlete who maybe can't tolerate 
uh, the weekly long run of a two hour, two and a half, three hour, whatever it is. Or maybe they can only tolerate it once a month or they reckon they can get through, maybe they can get through race day okay. They might fade towards the end, but they just can't tolerate that load, that higher running volume during the week. Based on what you just said in terms of we're focusing on peripheral adaptations as opposed to you know, oxygen kinetics and, and in improving our, our essentially our oxygen uptake, would you recommend for that athlete to, I guess what I'm saying is a common thing would be, hey, we've got an athlete who needs to go and uh, run aerobically for three hours, but they can't do it in training. So maybe we can do a low load alternative such as cycling, which is a lot easier on the body. Is that beneficial or because we're not really looking at doing the getting the aerobic adaptations over that three hours, it's more so the peripheral adaptations of the muscular endurance, that sort of thing. Are they better off maybe not doing that and then doing like some work in the gym or, or something like that? Yeah, uh, yeah. What, are, what are your thoughts? Oh, I think uh, injury permitting, um, you need to bank those long runs running. Like there's, there's no question about that. So really the, the adaptations uh, are mode specific or task specific. So, to, to facilitate those peripheral adaptations adequately to optimize your performance in the marathon. Um, yeah, it's, I would wholeheartedly um, advocate that you need to complete them running. Obviously there are certain circumstances that permit um, the use of cross training or low impact options. And that might be injury load management. But I think one thing you need to be really careful of in this particular circumstance is um, you need to make sure that it, that doing this type of low impact training. So whether it be cycling or swimming or whatever it is, you just need to understand that it, it is not, it, it's not optimal by any means. So it is selling the, the athlete short of, of their, you know, their specific goal, which is the three hour marathon. Um, and also they still need to accrue a certain amount of distance on legs to, to um, in the pursuit of that three hour marathon. So yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting topic and concept but mm. certainly despite the fact that centrally you are making really good adaptation by doing um lots of training on a bike or swimming or on an on an elliptical it there's it definitely um curtails your ability to execute the the task which is the marathon because you don't physically have enough um enough of those task specific um kilometers in, in your legs so the priority for the athlete should be to gradually accumulate volume to the point that they're, you know, getting up to that, say, 38, 39Ks. And if they can't, the, the, the focus should be uh, to figure out why they can't. Is it because they're not strong enough, in yeah. which, which case they need to get to the gym? Is it they're running mechanics and they're causing injury through dysfunction in their movement? And once we sort them out, the, the, the optimal, like the ideal goal is to be able to get them to, to do their volume, specifically running, because they need those peripheral adaptations to finish the race. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And I think your, your point around strength training is a really, uh, really poignant one. I think uh, there's really good evidence to support its use for uh, robustness. So, you, you know, if people that regularly or runners that regularly engage in lower body strength training um, and, and well-structured training, uh, it definitely lends itself to better robustness, better training consistency. So that's certainly a, a model that or an option for, for athletes to use. And then the other point that's that's really worth highlighting is just getting your training structure right. So if you've only if you can only ever if you can only long run once a month because of load limitations, how do you maximize the other three weeks to support the the that long run on that long run in the in week four? So really being um, astute with how you program the week to maximize aerobic fitness adaptation 
whilst managing the overall weekly load or monthly load in this case. Yeah, awesome. Let's uh, let's move on to the polarized training um, philosophy, uh, and then I think from there we can then move into tempo and threshold sessions for a for something like a marathon runner. So, can you just introduce what, what do we mean by polarized training and what are the benefits of it? Yeah, so the the I guess the term um, the, the the term or coin polarized training was um, was introduced by oh, I guess it's introduced. Uh, 15, 20 years ago by uh, Stephen Saylor. So he's a Scandinavian researcher who's worked out of the US quite a lot, um, but he's back in, in Denmark now. And um, he, he basically introduced this concept off the back of lots of research that they ran with elite um, skiing athletes, so uh, winter sport athletes. So they looked at, um, they looked at a whole host of um, uh, elite cross-country skiers and basically um, analysed their training intensity distribution. So essentially they looked at their, their training using heart rate data across the course of a year. And what they found was that the best athletes accrued the most time at an easy intensity. Okay. So, so that, that's sort of, that's where it sort of all spawned from the actual term polarized training um, refers to using, um, using a certain percentage of your training. So for example, if, um, if you've, if, if hundred percent of your training, um, if your training equates to 100% of your, 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 your training week, 80% of that should be low intensity. The actual research suggests that 0% of your training should be in zone two, and then the remaining 20% should be in zone three. We all know that in a practical sense, that is impossible to achieve because when you're transitioning from zone one through to zone three, you are going to transcend across zone two. So by virtue of that, it, it is not impossible to run a uh, or, or implement a really strict polarized training model. So there are, uh, I guess, a, a myriad of different training intensity distribution models out there. The polarized model, I guess, the, in a nutshell, the, the main ethos behind it is make your easy sessions easy. So that that's, sounds really intuitive and easy to implement, but you'd be, you'd be staggered as to how many people can't actually do that correctly. And then the, the other point, which is, which is really pertinent, is make sure your hard sessions are hard enough. So they're the, they're the two key points off the back of the polarized training model, which most people struggle to, um, to implement effectively across a, a normal training program. Yeah, no, very good. And, and for those listeners that you know, know that we use a five-zone system, there's three-zone systems, five, seven, whatever, there's so many different zone systems. What Nathan's saying there is that uh, for him, he's saying zone one is what we would call zone two, which is easy aerobic, long yep. runs, long rides, long swims. And then zone two, what Nathan was saying is our zone three, basically our tempo threshold. So you're not going easy, but you're not going really hard. And then uh, for zone three, what Nathan said was, is our zone four, which is VO2 max. So essentially what we're doing is we're either keeping it really, really easy, a really easy conversational pace for your long runs, or you're doing uh, time at VO2 max, essentially. And there's none of that middle ground, that gray sort of zone tempo threshold stuff. Theoretically is what that. Yeah, exactly. And look I think it's worth touching on there with the, with that three zone model. And again, it's, I'm not saying you, know, you have to use that model, but the, I guess all of the polarized research is using the the three zone model that you just referred to. And, and the main rationale for that is they argue that the three zone model does a better job of using um, zones that more accurately physiologically demarcate um, identifiable um, changes in your physiology. So yep. 
zone one to zone two is referred to as your aerobic threshold. And then zone two to zone three is referred to as your anaerobic threshold. Uh, Generally, these sort of correspond with certain percentages of of your max heart rate. So for example, zone one to zone two is typically 80% heart rate max. And zone two to zone three is typically 90% heart rate max. So it obviously does vary. And and you guys at METS would be in the really fortunate position to identify um, those more accurately, but in a global setting, um, that's that's kind of what comes out in the scientific literature. Yeah, perfect. Now let's keep it simple. I like it. So three zones is good. Um, all right. So I'm assuming that research that that's identified that hey, if we want to be as the as physiologically adapt as possible, have the, the highest level of aerobic fitness, that's brought about by either doing it easy for eighty percent and doing it really hard for twenty percent and sort of cutting out in the middle ground. Now, I think a lot of listeners, uh, and myself included, when you think about specificity of, of a race, it's always done in that zone two, so that, that, that middle ground where you are at your, your, your threshold, you're at your maximal sustainable pace for an hour or for two hours or for three hours. So we, we always sort of tell our athletes that, hey, if we want to get fitness improvements, we're either going easy or going hard, which is a polarised model. But then when we get closer to race day, I think there's maybe some scope to, to include some of that middle ground stuff, not necessarily for um, – fitness adaptation but just from a, a training specificity perspective and almost that having that feeling of competence of being able to hold a race pace which is an uncomfortably hard pace yep. for the set duration where do you sit on this sort of tempo threshold session um do you include it if not why i just just i'd be personally really curious as to how you use that that middle zone that zone two if, if at all yeah and no, it's a, a really good question and i think um in terms of my own personal philosophy with it, um, I, I guess it is in line with you guys. Like I think when you think about broader periodization models and a broader periodized, periodized running plan or conditioning plan, um, in a general preparation phase, I certainly don't use it because there's no need. I, I, bang, I rely on um, you know accruing quality, easy work, whether it be on the bike or whether it be running. Um, and then I complement that with um, really quality objectively prescribed hard work or high intensity work so that's that's certainly my ethos and model for for like general preparation phases but as you alluded to um as uh, athletes get nearer to competition um you obviously start to transition into specific preparation phases and that's where that tempo and threshold training is can be really valuable so um you know it does facilitate running at an event specific speed so this is obviously beneficial from a familiarization standpoint. Um, and as you alluded to, it definitely helps to build confidence and comfortability with running at, at what is, you know, what is an uncomfortable speed for a long period of time. Um, the other thing that I like about it in that specific preparation phase is it can provide variety for runners um, during prescribed long runs. So, um, you know, if anyone's done lots of long running before or lots of long cycling, it can be monotonous at times. Like you are, if you're running for three and a half hours, like that, that is a really long time. So what I have found is during these phases, the utilization of this type of tempo training can really break up um, those big long run blocks. So I don't typically use them when, when they're sort of approaching three hour runs, but certainly in that 90 minute to two hour um, running um, session duration slot, I'll certainly look at using some tempo sessions and it might be two by 20, two by 25 at a certain percentage of MAS or race pace. And certainly I've found them to be really beneficial and athletes do enjoy them because they are challenging 
And before they know it, because they're really concentrating on on holding a specific pace that is really relevant to them, because it is, uh, you know, akin to what they'll race with, the the you know the session before they know it, they've accrued 15 kilometers. Now, the only thing I will say is obviously they're the pros associated with that approach. The con, and this is this sort of stems in, this ties back to people that um, revert to this type of training all the time. It, the major limitation associated with tempo sessions is that it it does induce a sub suboptimal physiological stimulus. So when you think about um, trying to maximize aerobic fitness improvement, um, these, these types of sessions pale in comparison to higher intensity, um, objectively prescribed high intensity interval sessions. Yeah, it's a lot of load for, for suboptimal benefit. I think that's sort of the key. It, 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 we spoke earlier that if you want to do our, we do our zone one, our long, easy runs, we're going to get a lot of peripheral adaptations. You could do a three-hour long run, but you wouldn't be able to do a three-hour threshold run. It's not possible. Yeah. Well, if it is possible, you're going to be out of action for a long time because yeah. it's a significant amount of load on the body. But then if you want to chase the aerobic fitness gains, then you're better off doing high-intensity interval training and, and getting... Um, accumulating time at VO2 max, which is a, a concept that our listeners are very familiar with, yep. which sort of brings us into the next the next um, discussion point. So obviously, as our listeners know, we can we can test athletes in a lab and, and get their velocity at VO2 max or their maximal aerobic speed and then give them objectively prescribed high-intensity interval training sessions. How do you go about it in a field-based um, environment? I know you work a lot with with team sport athletes, but also with endurance athletes as well. Let, let's keep it on the endurance athletes yep. um, sort of scope. How, what would you do to figure out their maximal aerobic speed? And then how would you maybe prescribe some training off the back of that result? Yeah. So I guess that firstly, the term maximal aerobic speed obviously is derived from velocity of VO2 max. Major distinction being that uh, as opposed to determining that, um, that measure in a lab, that, that, that such as what you would do at Mets Performance, um, maximum aerobic speed is obtained via a field test. So for most of my uh, endurance runners that I work with as part of the conditioning consultant business, um, MAS is determined from time trials. So um, there's quite a bit of research around which investigates the validity and reliability of both time trials and then their application for determination of maximal aerobic speed. So um, for most of them, a 2K time trial is a relatively good um, duration and distance to, to, um, to, to use. Um, and it's also a distance that it's, it's sort of, I find it's a bit of a sweet spot for athletes. So I think most athletes could probably run a solo 2K time trial and do a pretty good job of it. Like they might be, they might obtain a slightly better result if they're running it in a group or with, with other people. But I find that as you start to lengthen that, um, that time trial distance out. So let's say you prescribe a, a solo 5K time trial. I find that a lot of athletes tend to struggle um, with, with trying to apply themselves for that duration of time. So, so for the most part, they, we tend to use time trials. There are a number of other field tests that you can use. So for endurance athletes, you can use, um, and, I, and I touch on these in the workshops that I presented, um, there's a maximum aerobic speed test, which is done on a track. Um, and then there's also a short track test, which again, similarly is done on an athletics track, but those tests um, require, um, or I guess they're a bit more onerous because they require more setup, more equipment. Um, so, you know, certainly running a 2K time trial is much easier for most people to, to run. Um, and then I guess the results obtained from uh, the 2K time trial provide me with an accurate maximum aerobic speed value, which I then use to prescribe individualized running conditioning. Now, 
the only thing I will add on on this is there's certainly athletes that I'll that I'll work with that I have no confidence in providing uh, or or scheduling a, a solo 2k time trial. Um, so in that case, what I'll tend to do is I'll prescribe um, a series of interval training sessions over the course of the first two to four weeks of their program. Once I've seen them complete those sessions and, and have analysed them accordingly, I'm then really confident with the, with determining an MAS value for them to then prescribe their training going forward. And then and then the, the hope is um, as COVID settles down and, and athletes can run like a park run, for example, I'll then be able to garner more insightful um, objective information from a testing standpoint because, yeah, they, I just don't feel like they're capable of doing a solo time trial um, for, for, for a whole host of different reasons. Yeah, I think it's a good point to make as well. Like uh, we, we're we big advocates of running to time versus running to distance, obviously for our high-intensity interval training sessions. And if you get a 2K time trial, we've got listeners that could do that in five minutes flat and others that could do it in 12 and a half minutes. So yeah. that's a very big difference. And, and obviously 12 and a half minutes is going to be way too long to – to, to estimate, you know, their velocity at VO2 max or the maximal aerobic speed. Do you want to maybe just quickly touch on something that I took as a, as a good takeaway message from one of your workshops was the, the time to exhaustion method and how that sort of correlates to about VO2 max? Yeah, so um, the research comes from Paul Lawson, who's um, who has done extensive research in the area of velocity at VO2 max and interval training application. And... Um, he introduced uh, a topic, a topic um, called time to exhaustion method. So essentially, it was um, there was two phases to determining a, a velocity of VO2 max. So the first phase was um, run a VO2 max test. Once they determined velocity of VO2 max, the athlete would come back in three, five, seven days, and they would basically run at that velocity at VO2 max value, and um, they'd basically run at that speed for as long as they could. So let's say they ran it, they um, were able to run at that speed for five minutes, that, that basically their time to exhaustion was five minutes. They then looked at using the, that time to exhaustion measure um, to prescribe training. So for example, what they did was that the method was uh, roughly you know, 40 to 60%. So let's say we're using smack bang on 50%. So basically they said, if, you, if we want to use 50% of time to exhaustion to prescribe your long intervals, then your long intervals would be two and a half minutes long. And the rationale for this approach was they wanted the first rep to elicit exposure to VO2 max. So the reason they said, okay, we want to use this concept is because right from the outset, they wanted athletes to hit VO2 max in their, in their first long interval rep. Now, one of the big limitations with this approach is that we know that with effectively prescribed long intervals, you don't need to hit VO2 max in your first rep because if you've prescribed it accurately and effectively, we know that there's a gradual increase in both oxygen consumption and heart rate across the course of the session. So even though an athlete might not hit VO2 max in the first rep, I'm confident that they might hit it in the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and so on, depending on what session you prescribe. So the method is obviously really sound backed by lots of scientific evidence, but it's, it does, um, it does have some limitations in terms of its practical application because it requires two tests and two maximal tests, which, which can be a big issue for, for a lot of people. Um, so I tend to use, uh, instead of the time to exhaustion method for, for interval training prescription, 
I tend to use just a set duration method, which I think you touched on as well, Luke. So, you know, that might be um, prescribing two minute intervals, knowing that, you know, unfortunately the first rep or two of the two minute intervals might not get you to VO2 max, but by virtue of repeatedly completing those two minute intervals for six, seven, eight, nine, 10 reps, whatever yep. you prescribed, they'll, they'll hit VO2 max. Now, I, I, was, I don't have a lot of experience in doing field-based testing. We've always done it lab-based. Um, but I, I, I'm going to have to paraphrase here because I, I can't remember exactly what you said in your presentation. But for some reason, four and a half minutes of going as hard as you can as a time to exhaustion seems to stick out to me. And, and where I'm going with this is if, we, if you've got an athlete which is motivated, that they, they know roughly, you know, they know that their maximal aerobic speed or VVO2 is going to be somewhere between, you know, 330 and 350 pace. They know they're going to have to hold that sort of intensity. If we were to go and say, all right, if we want to get a, a field-based maximal aerobic speed value, go out, flat time trial, uh, four and a half minutes, as hard as you can consistently maintain, is that going to be pretty close to getting maximal aerobic speed or not necessarily? Uh, so I think most of the research suggests that that's too short. So what okay. that would, so let's say, for example, let's say you did a flat four and a half minute um, time trial and you obtained maximal, maximal aerobic speed from that, you would find that that would overestimate MAS. Okay. So they're, they're, yeah, and there's, there's lots of papers that have looked at different time trial distances and durations. So a good, a really good paper I, I referenced in, in um, one of the workshops was a study by Clint Belenger from UniSA. And he basically, you know, he looked at anywhere from one or 1.2K all the way through to 2.2K, uh, and that's time trial distance. And yeah, basically found that 1.8 to 2K was the sweet spot. And there's also another paper, which is a little bit older and was done out of ACU in Melbourne by uh, Christian Lorenzen. Um, he, they looked at 1.6 and 3.2. So 1.6, significantly overestimated um, MAS in that, in that particular um, population group. So yeah, four and a half minutes would definitely be too short. But the other thing, the, the, I guess the other point to, to make there is um, there are regression equations available for all of these studies, which do tighten up and improve the accuracy of MAS. If you have to choose a certain test that might not be, might not necessarily be solely your decision. I guess it's a tricky one. Um... Because as I said before, if you've got a 2K time trial, it might take you five minutes, might take you 12 minutes. Is there, a, and I'm happy to say four and a half is too short. Is there a time duration that you would try to get close to? Like, as I said, 2K yeah. could be could be whatever. Are you saying, look, we want to, I, I chose a 2K time trial because I want it to be about six to seven minutes. And in which case, if you had yeah. like a very amateur athlete, do you say, let's do a 1.6K instead? Like, how do you sort of? No, no, it's a great question. Yeah. I, I think for the purpose of keeping testing consistent, so uh, for example, with the, the conditioning consultant business, I collate all of our testing data that we that we um, acquire through through our athletes, and I love the fact that I can cross-reference athletes across a multitude of abilities. So for me, my preference is keep the testing distance consistent, and then if I notice or start to identify any anomalies and anomalies in there testing, oh, sorry, their session performance, I then can adjust the MAS value off the back of that. So for example, if someone's tested quite poorly, but then they're performing their formative intervals at 100% MAS and they do that repeatedly, then I know that MAS isn't accurate because you, there's not, that, that should not be possible. So that's how I sort of cross-reference the, the MAS value from that particular test 
with the sessions that I that I prescribe and, and analyze. Yeah, perfect. All right, let's let's move on, mate. Let's move on to talking about how we can accumulate some time at VO2 max. Now, this is something that our listeners are very familiar with. We do talk about it quite frequently. Yep. Um, I have referenced, I'm not sure, oh, de- depending on when this podcast go out goes out, we have spoken about the 30 on, 30 off, and 30 on being about 120% with a 30 passive or about MAS with a th- with a 65 to 70% passive recovery. So that's that's some stuff that we've got from you. So we're yep. pretty familiar with how to accumulate time at VO2 max. Um, but I'm curious as I'm not curious. I'd like you to sort of go into a bit of detail about the differences in oxygen kinetics versus maybe a swimmer, uh, a cyclist, and a runner, and how you need to take that into account in terms of your training prescription for your your work to rest ratios for your hit your, uh, your hit sessions. Yeah, no problem. So it is something that is relatively misunderstood um, and just probably not considered that often by most people. So. Um, so oxygen and heart rate kinetics, um, uh, that it has a, uh, sorry, I'll start again. So exercise mode has a, has a profound impact on your oxygen and heart rate kinetics. So for example, um, we can, we can, we can talk about activities such as running and rowing. So they're, they're what, they're what they're regarded as fast kinetic activities. Um, in contrast, you think of it as an activity like swimming that is, that is regarded as a slow kinetic activity. So and, ju- and just I mean, sorry, I'll just jump in. Yeah, you say just to say uh, fast kinetic. Yes. You mean you're going to get your heart rate and your oxygen consumption up quickly versus yeah. swimming or something or cycling or maybe you might be a bit slower. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Yeah. So essentially, what you're looking at is when you commence exercise with those particular modes, what is the rate of um, response from a from from both your heart rate and oxygen consumption? Okay, so fast versus slow. So. This, this concept is underpinned by the by the amount of musculature involved in the activity. So um, if you think of you think of rowing is probably the best example. So that that uses lots of your muscle mass. So that is regarded as the most optimal fast kinetic activity. The other one which um, which is really notable in this regard is cross-country skiing. So that's an activity that that generally uses pretty much or almost every muscle in your body. And unsurprisingly, when you look at which athletes record the highest VO2 max values um, across elite endurance athletes. It's unsurprising that it is cross-country skiers. So it's particularly when you look at um, relative VO2 max. So um, that's un- so obviously the, the kinetic response is underpinned by the amount of musculature involved. So then when we think about um, how, this, uh, how this has an impact on session prescription or interval training prescription. So with fast kinetic exercise or activity, so let's, let's think about running as, a, as an example. Generally, when we're trying to achieve time at VO2 max for particular high-intensity interval training sessions, generally less volume is required per session to achieve that. And that's because the, the heart rate and oxygen consumption response is so effective. Okay, so um, again, depending on the sport, so whether you're a team sport athlete or endurance, session duration can range anywhere from 16 minutes all the way through to 25 to 30 minutes for a runner. Okay, so that that's that gives you a bit of a bit of a, a reference point, um, which requires obviously more information and more context to to really nail that down. And then for slow kinetic activity, so think of things like swimming or or if you're injured and you have to use like a battle ropes or a hand crank, and even cycling is is, is in in some regards is re- is re- regarded as a slow kinetic activity. They require more volume to achieve the same equivalent time of VO2 max goal. Okay, so uh, in, in the example for cycling, the session, instead of being 16 to 25, 30 minutes, an interval training session for cycling might range from 
30 all the way through to 60 minutes. So the, 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 the actual kinetic response for those particular modes does have a profound impact on the volume of your session prescription when you're trying to achieve time at a certain time at VO2 max. So when you talk about maybe the differences between, um, say, running, cycling and swimming, so fast sort of running being fast kinetic and cycling probably being mid, middle ground and sw- yeah. swimming being the slowest, when you say we need to change the, the volume, do we change the sessions, so the interval structure itself? So let's say we're doing a, for running, we're doing a, a three-minute interval at 95% of your maximal aerobic speed and a one-and-a-half-minute passive recovery, for example. Do you do the same thing on the bike, so three minutes at 95% with a one-and-a-half active uh, passive recovery, but just do more of them? Or do you need to change the actual interval itself and say, all right, we're going to do four minutes or less rest or an active recovery instead of a yeah. passive recovery. How do you sort of structure that? Is it just more volume overall or do we actually need to change the, the interval itself as well? You can do both to answer the, to answer your question. I would say more often than not, you're probably just doing more. Like I think when you look at running versus cycling, I think that they're probably much more similar. Swimming probably is a completely different kettle of fish because you're, uh, you're probably running off different time cycles and there's different groupings based on swimming squads and stuff and stuff like that. But when you're comparing running versus cycling, more often than not, you're just doing more. So let's, you, you know, if you're doing, uh, if for, for, for a runner, if you're doing three by six minute sort of longer interval efforts, for cycling, it might be five by six or, or six by six. So in that, in that instance, it's just doing more. The other thing you can do, and this probably more relates back to training status, so, and I do touch on this in, in, the, in the workshops, with novices, you tend to prioritize longer interval duration over intensity. And that's because if, as, as people become more accustomed and more well-trained and improve their aerobic fitness by virtue of all of those things, their uh, kinetic response to exercise improves. So that, that's, that's, a, that's a training adaptation that you experience. Um, so novices, they have, a slow kinetic response by and large. And I know this is, that is a big generalization. So by, by virtue of, of that, you would then prescribe longer intervals at probably a, a slightly less intensity than you would for someone that was more experienced. So I would say more often than not, just more volume of more, more of what you're actually prescribing for, for the, for the fast kinetic option. But I think training status definitely has an impact when you're referring to manipulating the sessions. And that might be, by increasing set duration um, to, to achieve that or subtle manipulations in work to rest ratio or the incorporation of active recovery. Those things can all be obviously tweaked and adjusted as well, but um, I guess it's hard to give a definitive answer without mm. the, the context that's required, yeah. So, I mean, what you're saying there is slow kinetic doesn't mean that you need a higher intensity or a greater stimulus. It just takes longer to get up to your VO2 max, in which case you're going to need to do more efforts because of that, if you're doing cycling of that three minute interval, maybe you spend only a minute at VO2 max versus running, you might spend a minute 45 at VO2 max. So you obviously have to do more total efforts uh, when you're talking about cycling. Interesting point you made there, mate, about um, novices versus more, more, uh, advanced athletes you're basically saying that uh the fitter you are the quicker you can increase your oxygen consumption and reach a steady state or, or similar uh which means you can essentially start to and this is i'm sort of thinking more of the this is some some of the topics we talk about with schools talking about getting to a steady state quicker increasing the aerobic contribution more quickly which means you're going to reduce the 
the anaerobic glycolysis contribution therefore have less lactic acid, less fatigue as a result. Now, that's a yeah, yeah, I, I, and that's absolutely spot on. So, and that's that's the major benefit of having um, fast kinetics. It does exactly that. It, it sort of dampens the anaerobic contribution and enables you to get into that anaero- uh, get into um, that aerobic steady state um, much quicker than someone that that doesn't have the same um, the same kinetic response to to exercise. Yeah, very good, mate. Hey, final question for you. Um, just sort of want to briefly touch on fartlek training. Um, what is your opinion on fartlek training, let's say, for a middle distance runner? So maybe somebody yeah. who's doing 1,500 to 5K, something like that. Um, what are the pros and cons of fartlek? And, you know, from a physiological perspective or maybe versus maybe a race-specific perspective, do you recommend we do it or, or is there better alternatives? Yeah, it's a really interesting question because um, I guess uh, I guess the concept is so ingrained in um, middle distance and endurance runner, um, uh, I guess in their environment. So for me, um, with when you're working with middle distance runners um, that have an extensive history of running, um, the application of fartlek running can be absolutely unbelievably effective because they have a great affinity with being able to pace. So they, they can run a like a whole host of different fartlek sessions and know exactly how to dial in on the right pace and how to pace the session to get through a 20, 30, 45 minute fartlek session. So that, that is really critical. So they, by, by virtue of the fact that they're really experienced and adept at pacing means that it justifies the use of that type of training with them. So my issue with fartlek training is more relevant when you talk about people that are less experienced with pacing. So um, think of a team sport athlete or even just a a less experienced endurance athlete. So whether it be a cyclist or runner, when you're trying to prescribe more subjective guidelines around fartlek training, it doesn't really resonate or work as effectively because they don't have the pacing skill to pull it off. So a really, a a great example I'll provide is um, when you try and provide more subjectively prescribed interval training or fartlek training is probably is a bit is the better term um, with inexperienced runners or athletes let's say it's four by four minutes at at 90 effort what will happen is they will absolutely take off and the first four minute rep will be at a unbelievably quick speed and then traditionally what happens is they each rep gets subsequently slower so that is really not what you want when you're trying to maximize time at VO2 max, which is what we're trying to achieve with, with interval or fartlek sessions. So, so my point there is when, when you're dealing with athletes that don't have the same level of capability with pacing, you can still definitely use fartlek training, but you just need to be mindful of the fact that it does have limitations because it does require a lot on um, an athlete's perception of effort. So um, not everyone has that skill, um, that innate skill, or, or learnt skill um, ready, readily available for them. So as a goal of, as a goal of Fartlek as a session, are you of the opinion that the goal of it is to accumulate time at VO2 max versus above and beyond your threshold, but not quite up to that VO2 max? So it just kind of just depends on, well, yeah. on the prescription, I, it, I suppose. Well, yeah, I think, I think it's, that latter point is correct. I think it really does depend. I think there are some that are genuinely supposed to be high intensity sessions that, that, um, that accumulate time at near time at or near VO2 max. I do think there are certainly fartlek sessions, which, um, you know, I think 
using a cycling parlance there, like over-unders. So they're just kind of around that threshold mm-hmm. level and, and they sort of sustain that for a really extended period of time. There's, def- there's definitely um, options that sort of gravitate towards that type of goal. Um, but yeah, I think for me is, for me, my, I guess the point is when we talk, when we refer back to the polarized training concept, if you start to apply too many of those fartlek sessions that are, that are in that moderate training zone, then you're probably doing yourself a disservice with, with training adaptation, particularly if you're, you're after aerobic fitness improvement. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think if anybody takes anything away from this podcast today, it's, it's the polarized training is the, the method that should be done. It, it's, it's very, it's still ingrained in people's um, behaviors that in a, general preparation base phase we should only do zone one or really easy runs uh, or rides or swims but the evidence is is unequivocal that we should be doing 20 percent of our work at high intensity as well because that's going to get better aerobic stimulus better aerobic adaptation yeah and i think luke the point i'll add there is and again i'll share the happy to share the post with you so we've we've as part of the tcc instagram we put together a post which just um it was from the a stoggle research paper which looked at summarizing eight different training intensity distribution models. So polarized training is one of those models. The most traditional model that most people run to is threshold. So that's the most common one that people would would run in. But there's another model which basically no one would have would have ever heard of is it's it's referred to as the pyramidal model. And I think for most people that's probably the most practically applicable. And again, happy to, to share the post with you, Luke, and, and your um, listeners. Um, but but really, the 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 the, the fundamental concepts of pure, of polarized training still are relevant. It's just acknowledging that the whole concept of spending no time in that middle zone is practically almost impossible. Yeah. So so again, I think that that pyramidal concept I think is one that I try and. Um, educate my athletes on because I think it's the one that has the most relevance in a practical setting because when you if you look at your training intensity distribution of an interval training session you might accrue six or seven minutes above 90 percent but you're probably accruing 12 or 13 minutes between 80 and 90 so that's not an issue in itself because you have banked good quality uh, time at high intensity but by virtue of recovering and transcending through Zone two, you are accruing a bit of time there too. Yeah, awesome, mate. I think that's a good way to finish off. Um, I know we both need to shoot off to an, uh, other commitments now. So let's um, let's do this. Those listening now, you, you need to go and follow Nathan on Instagram uh, at The Conditioning Consultant. He has fantastic information. He has our full confidence in terms of following similar philosophies. And uh, to be honest, when it comes to field-based testing and team sport athletes in particular has a lot more uh, experience in that area than ourselves. If you can't come to us to get your, get your testing done and therefore your programming, if you're looking at a field-based alternative, Nathan's the guy to see. If you're any, if you're in a team sport, uh, we had a netballer come, come through the other day, Uh, any team sport athletes that are looking for for improved conditioning, he's got a lot of experience in hockey, netball, track and field, things like that. Um, Drop him a line. He does do training programs. His information is very useful. Can they send, send you an email? Nathan, what's the best way to contact you? Yeah. uh, Well, they can either send a a private message on Instagram or, or email me on um, hello at theconditioningconsultant.com.au. We will uh, we'll 
post the links to both the email and for the conditioning consultant Instagram in the show notes below. Um, if you have any follow-up questions, please send myself an email, luke at metsperformance.com. We'd love to get Nathan out again based on your questions. Um, there's a million and one things we could continue to talk about, but time is limited and uh, we, want to, we, th- we want to throw it over to you guys uh, to let us know what you'd like spoken about in the future. So Nathan, I appreciate your time, mate. I know you're a busy guy. Um, uh, I find your stuff really, really valuable as a professional development for myself. And I know that our listeners would find a huge, huge amount of value from uh, not only your content, but also the services that you provide as well. So thanks for your time, mate. No worries, Luke. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Certainly been an enjoyable conversation and, and, and likewise, mate, keep up the great work with Mets performance. Certainly, um, you guys do a tremendous job of, of uh, explaining, um, I guess, topics that are largely misunderstood in, a, I guess, a really palatable form for, for people that are interested. So, mate, uh, really, really, really enjoyable. Uh, really enjoy your, um, your content. So um, keep it up. I appreciate it, mate. That's it for today, guys. Uh, we'll speak to you on the next episode. Hey, podcast. Nick from Mets here. Hopefully you enjoyed another great episode of the Physiology Secrets podcast. If you want to keep up to date with any future episodes we produce, other content we create here, or just anything that's happening in the lab here in general, be sure to click the link below. Sign up to our weekly updates. We're going to receive some absolute gold in terms of what's happening in the lab, what are we seeing and observing, and also some of our old content as well that you might have missed to further understand the science behind endurance performance. So if you are interested, make sure you do click the link below, sign up for those weekly updates, and head over to our social media as well. Follow us along at Instagram at Mets Performance. Head over to Facebook. We have a great YouTube channel as well. Be sure to check out all of our great content that is already up there, but also some of the great stuff that is coming soon. Thanks again. Be sure to share the podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed another episode and we'll see you in the next one.